0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are all drawn to you like a gravitational pull. At the culmination of human history, everyone will see either unity with you in light or face permanent expulsion into outer darkness. Our hearts and our minds and our bodies are full of constant reminders of our need to face you daily as you bring us to your throne. Even those opposed to you are not content to dismiss you. They rage in vain, proud of their rebellion. You are inescapable. The orbit of our lives revolves around your actions of loving provision and correction. We thank you for both. We thank you for the days this week that we have had our hearts open to you and your nearness was apparent. Give us more days where allegiance to you marks our day through our truthful and loving words and actions. And Lord, we thank you for your loving correction because we have too many days where even as you draw us to you, we turn our backs. We fall for the deception that worldly tools of wealth and self will make us happy. We fall for the deception that there are no consequences for living in opposition to you. We have days of apathy toward you Days we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Days we don't cherish your words and the opportunity to go to you in prayer. Lord, if Jesus needed to study and live by your words and he prayed so relentlessly, then how much more do we? Forgive us for dabbling in Christianity. Lord, let our hearts and minds and bodies be consumed with devotion to you. Let this church be made pure and whole in its devotion to you. Father, we continue to ask for healing and comfort for those who are struggling with health and pain, both mentally and physically. Lord, we long for the day that these are put away, and until then, we profess our steadfast hope in you. We ask for healing for the Jacobson's grandson, Beck, for the Robison's nephew, Cole, and Tyler's father. In all of these situations, we ask for healing and we ask for a deep understanding of you and your presence. We ask that the presence of your people would be the manifestation of your presence. We praise you for Georgia Copeland's continued recovery. Help it to be complete, and we ask that you would use her and her testimony as a light to everyone around her. Lord, we praise you for your work in other congregations in the Northwest. We pray for Selwood Church in Portland, We ask that their gathering this morning of praise and confession and thanksgiving would edify them and encourage them to endure for your sake. Let their study of 1 Corinthians be fruitful in the life of that church. We thank you and praise you for Redemption Church in Portland. We ask that they would have courage to endure the resistance that they face to making your name great in their community. Lord, show your greatness in their lives and vindicate the faithfulness of your people. Lord, we join with the great multitude in heaven saying, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the corrupt earth and its immorality. He has avenged his servants. Father, even now around us, you have begun your judgment of your enemies. They are cast into chaos and confusion. So for us, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word this morning so that we would live our lives in accordance with you, so that we would not fight your loving embrace as you draw all things into alignment with your will. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our King, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Amen,
1: thank you, Ryan. You can open up your Bibles to Revelation 18, 9 through 24. How many of you have ever built a sandcastle before? Anyone? Such an interesting pastime, isn't it? We completely and wholly invest ourselves in the building of something that we know will be overcome with the forces of the ocean in relatively quick order. And we do it anyway because it's artistic and creative and fun thing to do, right? But it is interesting, isn't it, how we put so much energy and time into building something that we are assured will eventually be destroyed. Our text the last few weeks and finishing up this week kind of has a similar feel to it, doesn't it? Throughout Revelation, we've seen the contrast of the heaven-dwellers and the earth-dwellers. John has painted the earth-dwellers and those who pour their lives out in allegiance to the kingdom of darkness, backed by this counterfeit trinity and reminiscent of Babylon and its rebellious idolatry against the one true God. Like a sandcastle, the earth-dwellers have artistically crafted this rebellious system against God knowing full well that it will be overcome and judged one day because God has declared it so, and yet they put their time and energy into it. But now we see that the metaphor of a sandcastle breaks down a bit. For with sandcastles, everyone, even the smallest child, knows and expects that it will be destroyed by the regularly oncoming waves of the sea, and yet we do it anyway. But what makes the worldly system of Babylon so bizarre is that those who are its citizens do not expect that it will be destroyed, even though God has said it will. Perhaps a better illustration, then, is like the bridge project that I had to do as part of an engineering unit in middle school science. Anyone else have to do this? It had popsicle sticks and glue. Anybody else have to do that? Yeah. Now, our goal was to build this bridge to withstand weight using only these Popsicle sticks and some joining agent. I don't quite remember what it was, probably hot glue or something, right? Really powerful. (laughs) I still remember the project because we put so much energy and thought into it. Myself and my classmates thought if we just do the perfect design with the perfect angles, We will win the project and it will withstand the weight. We were so proud of our accomplishment when it was done, we were kind of like Tom Hanks in Castaway. I have made fire, right? We have made a bridge. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And yet only moments later, our teacher put the bridge into a special machine that clamped down and pressed the structure and to our shock and dismay, the whole bridge splintered like, well, like a bridge made with popsicle sticks, right? (laughs) Now, in a similar way, all earth-dwelling society continues to pour its resources into this world we see around us. We put so much energy into it because at the end of the day, those earth-dwellers that are pictured here selfishly profit from its evil. Yes, there are some things in our society that deserve some admiration because there are some things we have done, think about uh, when we care for the sick, for example, that reflect the maker who is ultimately behind our creation. But so much of our society is simply a continual perversion of God's good order that results in nothing but rebellion and idolatry. And often, even the things that look selfless from the outside are, in fact, motivated by a selfish desire to prosper, to profit, and, like the original Babylon, to make a name for ourselves. And yet God has declared from the beginning that this world will be judged— But because our sinful hearts of worship and adoration have been placed into the society we have built, all those who are its loyal citizens will mourn at this judgment in a way never seen before. And this morning, we will hear that mourning in a funeral dirge for Babylon, sung by those who profit from its evil. And this is the title of today's sermon, A Funeral Dirge for Babylon, Sung by Those Who Profit from Its Evil. Now, this text, I believe, will bring us great conviction about the ways in which we still fellowship with Babylon, and it should cause us to repent towards a more devout allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it will also vindicate God's character and judgment as we grasp a little bit more why judgment is necessary and why, dear friends, judgment is good as we look towards chapter 19. So let's. Read our text out of Revelation 18, 9 through 24, and we will listen to the song of the mourners of the kingdom of darkness. Verse 9 says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, with Babylon, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city! You mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls. Fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour All this wealth has been laid waste. And all her shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. The very first thing that we see is the morning chorus of those in power. The morning chorus of those in power in verses 9 and 10. We left off last week with the vision of judgment coming upon the symbolic city of Babylon. And the image was of a powerful imperial city burned to the ground with raging fire. Now this would have resonated deeply with those first century Christians in the city of Rome... As it had been badly harmed by fire, most of the city being burned down in 64 AD, roughly 30 years before the writing of Revelation. You've heard that line, Rome burned while Nero fiddled. Now it is with this backdrop that we begin the repetitive chorus of mourning that will echo three distinct times with three similar themes. In each of the three, we will see the disaster described from a different angle. We will see three different but interrelated groups stand off at a distance in horror at the disaster. We will hear their weeping and mourning as well as their cry of woe with the phrase, alas, alas. And we will notice their arrogant shock that the system which they helped to build is destroyed. And a couple of times we will hear the Lord speaking loudly through the messenger angel. And so first, we begin with the morning chorus of those in power, symbolized by the kings of the er- excuse me, kings of the Earth. You can see it there in verse nine. and the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They are described as those who committed sexual immorality with the harlot of Babylon. And remember, from the last two weeks, this harlot symbolizes the perverse fellowship between the economic system and materialistic idolatry that has characterized all of the great nation-states of history, including our own. Committing sexual immorality and living in luxury with this prostitute means that the kings voluntarily, willingly, and energetically take part in this system of pursuing material wealth and a hedonistic lifestyle all as a form of worship to the idolatrous pagan gods that sat behind the system. Friends, do not be deceived. Just because the person uses a word like God, which is a title of a deity, does not mean it is the God of Christianity. Now, these world leaders are pictured as taking part in this system not for the benefit of their subjects or citizens, but for their own selfish purposes of gaining power. They are seduced by the suggestions of power and dominance dangled before their faces by Babylon. Not unlike the temptation of Christ with the nations of the world, these leaders hear the siren call of Satan's mistress, Babylon, saying, yoke yourself to me and I will give you power. By encouraging this economic, religious, political system, these world leaders that span history can claim and uh, more and more power over the citizens of their kingdoms who are left poverty-stricken and ostracized from the wealthy circles of society. Rather than lead in the stewardship God has given to leaders, they are worried only about their own position of power or, in our wording today, getting reelected. And because their participation in feeding this system will gain them more luxury and more power, they weep and they wail when they see this symbolic city burning to the ground. The word whale here is to beat the breast and cry out in an almost subhuman lament of horror and self-pity. The image here is pathetic in nature, crying as if they were so close to the power that they craved, but it is now lost never realizing that the power they craved was not possible in the first place because only one can have that power, God himself. And rather than run to the aid of this political system that they perversely adored, these supposedly strong leaders are pictured standing far off as cowards in fear of the same torment befalling them. John hears them utter a statement that is as ridiculous As it is paradoxical, alas, alas, or woe, woe, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. In other words, they're saying, Babylon, you were too powerful, too rich, too mighty, too strong to fail. It was impossible for you to fail. And yet, look at what it says next, Yet you fell in a single hour. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Like Nebuchadnezzar before them, the original author of this name for Babylon, the great city, their arrogance is in the city they mourn. Like Nebuchadnezzar, their arrogance has reduced them to animalistic instincts and subhuman debauchery with the demonic system they supposedly lead. Now I wonder, in this section if this thirst for an empty power is present not only in the kings, but in the people that they represent. For especially in a democratic republic so-called, it is the people who are lulled into a false sense of security that they have the ultimate power. And so they, we, buy into a system that sells us the unrealistic notion that participation in the system of Babylon will provide wealth, control, power and ease, and yet all of this supposed strength that we claim in the United States, just as every imperial power has done before us, will one day be judged and destroyed, and yet we cry out, oh, great country, too powerful, too wealthy, too strong militaristically to fail. We repeat the errors of our forefathers, The psalmist gives us a very clear picture. Psalm 33, 16 through 21 says this, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our, great, uh, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And just earlier in that same passage, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Question, where in the Bible does it say that God has chosen the United States of America as his heritage? Literally nowhere. Brothers and sisters, this call to bless a given nation whose God is the Lord has never been and will never be an earthly nation who participates in the Babylonian religious, economic, political perversion of the world. It has always been and will always describe the nation of the new humanity of Christ's redeemed church of all nations. Don't put your hope in so-called political solutions or political leaders. They are not the one in whom we put our hope. Amen? Well, next we hear the mourning chorus of the suppliers in verses 11 through 17a. It says there, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. And then there's this list of all of the cargo, including human souls. And then God jumps in and says, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. These merchants symbolize and stand in for those on the supplier side of the economic beast. Throughout world history, the great imperial cities have become centers of trade and commerce, and all the rest of the known world centers around them, much like the the stock market of our Wall Street. Throughout world history, the great imperial cities have held up the world's economy. And those who have dreams of growing wealthy know they must be yoked to the fortunes of these cities. And it was no different in the first century of Rome Of John's day and it is no different today as people flock to the United States to live out the great American dream. Here the merchants, like the kings of the earth, stand off and weep and mourn for Babylon the harlot, since no one buys their cargo anymore." Hmm, this sounds interestingly familiar. You see, they are not saddened for altruistic reasons. The text in verse 15 here tells us that they gain wealth from her and they see their vehicle of prosperity fading away. The statement of lament that they issue speaks clearly to their heart for this worldly system. Look again at verse 14. This is a lament, but at the same time it is God speaking and telling them what they were yearning for. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. You see there is a fruit for which they long but it is not the fruit of God's spirit or kingdom. Rather it is the proverbial low-hanging fruit of wealth accumulated out of an idolatrous materialism. It's looking for the easy buck. And they long for it. The word here in the Greek is familiar to or similar to lusting after it. There is an inordinate and uncontrolled desire to grab their piece of the prosperity pie and rise to the top of their peers to be better than the Joneses next door. If your last name is Joneses, I apologize. (laughs) To experience the delicacies and splendors of a lifestyle of the rich and famous. They now mourn because the possibility of this is gone forever. You'll also notice an intense and long list of all the expensive cargo that they sold. Jewelry, precious metals, Fine clothing, construction materials, rare spices, wine and oil, other foodstuffs, animals that are for food and warfare, and even, as the list ends, slaves, which the vision emphasizes are human souls. Friends, if you wonder if our country was formed in Judeo-Christian principles or in Babylon, look at the beginning of our country and see if we had slavery or not. And if you think I'm just being woke, you don't know me at all. A quick survey of history and most of the damage done to mankind by mankind is in quest of riches and land, wealth and power. It is driven by greed. Now, one might argue that mankind needs to live and therefore needs a livelihood, and yes, that is true, but the idea of livelihood can quickly devolve into self-worship. It is a means of gaining power we justify ourselves thinking we just need to provide that much better for our family, which is indeed honorable, would you not agree? That is honorable. And yet we find ourselves sinking control and power through economic means, if even just the power to control the chaos around us and buffer us from the judgment that is coming upon this world and even our own nation. When world leaders or whole groups of people do this, we have the violence and conflict that has plagued mankind throughout history. You see, greed so devolves mankind into a subhuman creature that we figure out ways to even justify the enslavement of other humans made in the image of God, and yet pretend that preaching the gospel to them is enough to make us righteous. To get to this place is to be in the midst of judgment already for God has given us over to our demonic selves. The language that John is using and the overall imagery of this section comes from God's judgment of the wealthy kingdom of Tyre in Ezekiel 27. You can read through that whole chapter on your own this week. I would highly suggest it. Uh, But the section begins this way in Ezekiel 27, 12 through 14. It says, Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind, silver, iron, tin, and lead they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From beth Tog- uh, Togarmah, they exchanged horses, war horses, and mules for your wares. Now notice here that the list begins with enslavement, but the list in Revelation ends with it, following the statement of the trade of livestock. This implying that their greed led them to an end point where they even validated uh, the most inhuman of trades. One commentator calls it an indictment of that world's or our world's values. Tyre became so greedy and arrogant in their political, economic, religious idolatry that God judged them completely. Now, this from a few verses later in that same passage, Ezekiel 27. He says, your rowers have brought you out into the high seas. The east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your mariners and your pilots, your caulkers, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all your crew that is in your midst, sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. In other words, they had been become so burdened and weighed down with their wares that it actually sunk them. And God will do the same to any and every imperial system that is similarly motivated by greed. Well, the angel, back in Revelation, uses this same language and declares that these wares will never be found again. This economy that made the merchants gods, so-called, and kings in their own eyes, was now destroyed. And their response is shock that this level of wealth could be so quickly destroyed. It's like they were looking at electronic money or something. <laughs> well, these merchants, like the kings of the section before them, do not come to the aid of this system that they have built. They cannot. And they stand far off, similarly, in fear of the knowledge of that same torment will come upon them. And they weep and mourn and lament, saying, Alas, alas! And they now declare it a great city, for they viewed it as a raid in these fine clothes." Fine linen, purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. Friends, this language is the language in the Old Testament used to describe the high priest's clothing. You see, this system of Babylon, in a sense, became and has become the high priestess of idolatry on behalf of her adherents. The materialistic nature of Babylon's citizens is the very medium by which idolatry is practiced. You see, you know your worship by your time, your talents, and your treasures. And we, unfortunately, are no different. Oftentimes, even within the church, rather than time spent thanking God for that which he has already provided, we spend our time complaining that we don't have as much as the next person and whining that God is not faithful to us. We spend hours every day scrolling through the pictures of other lifestyles wondering why we are not so blessed and we internally rage against our provider. Rather than spending our time, talents, and treasures seeking after and adoring Christ and his kingdom, we give him the leftovers of that which we have given over to the Babylonian system in which we dwell. If we pause for a moment, We will realize that we are often pulled into this same system. It has gone from being a simple means of provision for a roof over our heads and food on our table to a competitive game in which we are all looking for the biggest piece of the pie. And it seems that the moment that we break free from it, we Christians find ourselves, like the Egyptians, mourning over the leeks and melons I've always thought that was weird that we had when we were once enslaved or Lot's wife looking back with adoration at the depraved city that held her captive. We should instead flee from its siren call and praise God for freeing us from its grasp. But you see, it wasn't only the suppliers in the economic system of Babylon that mourned her downfall. It was also the consumers. And that's what we see next is the mourning chorus of the consumers. The mourning chorus of the consumers. We love to rage against our politicians. We love to rage against the 1%. But friends, none of them would be in business if it weren't for those that follow them. Let's read this section again, starting in the second half of verse 17. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, "'What city was like the great city?' And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned." You can see this Middle Eastern mourning habit going on there. they cried out, "'Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste.'" This group, seen here as the shipmasters and seafaring men, is that group of economic middlemen that trade goods with one another. They are the independent business owners, so-called, of the day, and they stand in for those on the consumption side of the picture. Now, please hear me, just to be clear, I'm not saying owning your own business is bad. Don't hear that, okay? Not at all. But if you are obsessed with the consumption, that is who these people are picturing. They, like the merchants and kings before them, stand far off, afraid of the torment coming their way. And they weep and cry as they see the smoke from the burning city. They, too, lament. What city was like this great city? Their cry echoes the foolish adoration of the counterfeit Messiah, the beast, in Revelation 13, 4, where they cried out and said, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The answer? (laughs) God will destroy him. And both of these are rebellious and mocking statements that are indeed in contrast to the true power and authority of God himself. For he is the only one for whom this language of greatness should be used. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Yahweh, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But those enthralled with the imperial cities whom Babylon symbolizes, those adoring of the economic prosperity and political uh, clout that these cities bring them, they will confuse their politics and their economics with the one true God who will crush both under his foot on Judgment Day. In this, we see the primary perversion that these laments are displaying. Throughout the heavenly chorus, songs, and revelation, we have seen that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Amen? Amen. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You want the purpose of your life? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when moments of judgment come, they are meant to call men and women to repentance so they can turn and do so again. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the purpose displayed by these lamenting by those lamenting Babylon, is to consume until they are satiated, but that satiation will never come. And this is nothing more than an exercise in futility, because no amount of consumption, no amount of gluttony, no amount of lustful pursuit of any kind of lifestyle will ever satisfy mankind, because that was never our purpose. Our purpose is to, say it with me, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now why is that? Why is it that Jesus teaches so much about what we are to do with our treasure, our finances? Why is it that the very picture of the worldly system is one consumed with wealth and materialism? Because, friends, Satan loves to pervert God's good order. How can he take the kingdom of God... And pervert it. Well, that kingdom has God as the benevolent provider of all that is good. That's chapter 1 in Genesis. Provision is good. Consumption of that which God provides for that purpose is good, but only within those bounds. And so Satan, in his twisting deception of the world, wants to make the creatures who should be content. Trusting and thankful recipients of God's provision believe that we can be our own providers and that God is faithless in what he's provided. So friends, I want to ask you this morning, what is the economic cycle of your life and discipleship? Do you view yourself as your own provider? Is it God who is your provider or is it Amazon Prime? Do you attempt to live within your means as God provides for your necessities or are you trying to live outside your means so that you can glory in your best life now, getting as many toys as possible? Well, is your life marked by generosity or is it marked by the saying, he that dies with the most toys wins? Do you pray in earnest thanksgiving to God when you eat? or when you get a paycheck, or when you purchase something new? Or have you forgotten why you say grace before meals? Or worse yet, no longer do it at all? It is so funny to me, funny in a sad way, when I hear Christians say things like, yeah, we don't, we don't say grace before meals anymore, that's just a religious tradition. No, friend, it is three times a day reminding you that you are nothing. You are dust. And the very food that keeps you alive is not provided by the store you bought it from, nor by your hands that made it, but by the Creator who made rain fall to the earth so it could grow. Do you do it at all anymore? And when you do it, what is your heart? Friends, the answer to these questions will tell you whether or not you participate in Babylon and the idolatry she promotes or whether you are an ambassador of the new Jerusalem amidst a world that will soon face judgment. And just as a side note, because I love you dearly and I don't want to want you to get caught deceived, this is why the idea of the prosperity gospel in any form is so abhorrent to God. If you are unfamiliar, the prosperity gospel is all around us, even in Christian churches. It is the belief and activity of churches who teach that the chief end of man is to have the most successful, blessed life possible. Hashtag too blessed to be stressed. (laughs) Friends, our chief end is to glorify God and worship Him forever. Not pursue our own wealth, our own 50 days to a better pocketbook, 50 days to a better marriage, 50 days to better parenting, 50 days to you fill in the blank. God is not our cosmic butler catering to our every whim. It is a godly church that will promote the worship of God alone, requiring of us that we die to ourselves. It is an unhealthy church at minimum and a perverse false church at most that will cater to the consumeristic yearnings of false Christians seeking only the worship of promotion and promotion of self. Well, all of this ungodly system will be ultimately brought to judgment. And this is the last section we see back in Revelation 18. There, what we hear is the silencing finality of God's judgment and the saints rejoicing. The silencing finality of God's judgment and the saints rejoicing. God breaks in and says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God breaks in through the voice of the angel and calls his saints to rejoice. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. The first thing we hear is a command to rejoice slightly odd in the midst of a funeral dirge. The audience of this command is all of the people of God, the prophets and apostles who were the very mouthpieces of God in both the Old and New Testaments, and the set-apart people who followed them in both Testaments, the saints, also named here as heaven itself. They are commanded to rejoice, we are commanded to rejoice because, notice, God has given judgment for you against her. This is a difficult translation. Another way to put it that more directly captures its meaning is, God has imposed on this system of Babylon the same sentence that she passed on you. What an immediate reminder of what distinguishes the saints from the citizens of Babylon. For this statement of God's justice is true, and it shows his just nature. Exodus 34.7 tells us that God will by no means clear the guilty, and so it is a requirement of God's own character that he holds this system in justice. We are reminded here that God must, therefore, pour out his just wrath upon the greedy, demonically-backed system that has stricken the oppressed with poverty, that has enslaved souls and led to wars and murders and bloodshed beyond what we can comprehend. This is God's goodness in justice at work. And so it is good and it is right that God judges in this way because it is righteous and it is fair. But then each one of us should rightly ask, why not me? For I know at my core, I am no better off than these mourners of Babylon. I find myself looking at the news, mourning inflation, mourning the economy. I sit in the mire of materialism and I find myself yearning for the luxury I see. Why have I not been given completely over to this harlotry as well? And why does God continue to call my heart back to worship Him and enjoy Him forever? We are saved from this fate, dear brothers and sisters, because God has imposed on Christ the judgment that you and I deserve and has given us a new heart that glorifies God. You see, the wrath had to be poured out. For those that are unrepentant, it will be poured out on them. For those that are in Christ, it was poured out on him. We deserve the fire of his wrath to destroy us, and yet Christ himself, the king of the new Jerusalem, took God's wrath upon himself while on the cross so that we could be set apart for the eternal worship of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and because of this we have been made his own and been given his heart that lives in thankful worship to him for all he has provided for life for breath salvation for his spirit for his word for his people and for all the provision that we need. Thanks be to God for his marvelous provision. But for those who will not submit to the King of the New Jerusalem, nor accept his sacrifice, which brings atonement with the Father, all will feel the wrath of the Father in just judgment. And this is what's displayed next. A mighty angel takes a great millstone and throws it into the sea and states that Babylon will sink with similar violence and be found no more forever. A millstone was a large rock that was used to roll over the top of grain to crush it into flour. To do so would require these rocks to be large and heavy, and so the idea is obviously that one tied to this millstone should never be able to rise again, but would drown at the bottom of the sea. This language is reminiscent of the language used by Jeremiah at the end of his prophetic word of judgment on Jerusalem that we looked at last week. Let's revisit it quickly up on the screen. Jeremiah 51, 60 through 64. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon All these words that are written concerning Babylon and Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you uh, you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. Because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. John the Revelator's vision is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to judge Babylon. For it is not just one world empire that needs to be judged, but all world empires, because these empires set themselves up in rebellion against the ultimate kingship of Christ, and that includes the United States of America. And it is Christ who has conquered the nations by the work of the cross and who will come again to judge all peoples, tribes, and tongues. A similar use of the language was heard in our reading this morning, as Christ calls those in power to watch out for their abuse of those more vulnerable than they. For if they are not cautious, they will find themselves with similar judgment. The finality of this judgment is shown in the removal of all of the sounds of a bustling society, as captured in this poetic lament. Any form of entertainment and mirth will be removed. Any sign of labor and construction will cease No lights of society and activity will be seen. And even the very cornerstone of society and civilization, marriage of men and women to begin families, will be removed. This is the resulting curse of breaking covenant with the giver of all good gifts. And his judgment, friends, is not that he has to initiate these things. It's that society itself will destroy them. Take the very last one marriage of men and women to begin families. God doesn't have to do anything. Our society is destroying that itself. He simply pulls his hand of protection and leadership back, and society shows its true heart. This kind of silence is the promised covenant curse to those who continue in rebellion. In Jeremiah 25.10, God uses similar language to describe the judgment on Judah as they are led into exile in Babylon because of their idolatry. He says there, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This is the language from which John the Revelator pulls. But here in our text in Revelation, God is paying back Babylon with this same judgment. And John goes on in Revelation and states clearly three reasons why this judgment will come upon all who cooperate with the Babylonian system. First, he says... The merchants of Babylon, the very people who are lamenting its demise, they thought they were the great ones of the earth. It says that right there in the middle of verse 23, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. These merchants thought that they were the great ones of the earth. Their arrogance and self-delusion that they are the king's providers and rulers led to their abuse of the very people and societies God gave them to steward. Rather than lifting up Christ as the only true great one, their entire lives have become about lifting themselves up in adulation. In a society largely based on social media and its influencers today, can we understand what this looks like? Absolutely. Well, second, Babylon deceived the nations with their sorcery, and far too much discussion has happened on this word sorcery over the years simply because it's the Greek root of the word that we get pharmacy from. This is not talking about drugs, friends. It is merely a declaration that these imperial systems across all history become seemingly so powerful in the eyes of those who desire its wealth that it draws them into this kind of magical, drunken stupor where all discernment flees and they become enamored with her perversions, unable to see for themselves where they justify their allegiance to her. And third, this worldly system, which is the antithesis of and contrast to God's system and kingdom, has been the instigator of all persecution and martyrdom of the saints. This can be traced all the way back to Abel, who wanted to be blessed and chosen for his labors, In the field, and was jealous of the blessing that Cain received in his obedient sacrifice to God. And it's responsible not only for the blood of the saints, but this system has been the background to every death of any slain on the earth out of warfare or greed, murder, envy, strife, and so on. Well, this text should cause us to perform some deep introspection, should it not? to see where we are unknowingly cooperating with the ideological foundations of Babylon to the degree that we are welcoming our own demise. Friends, if reading through this has sparked in you defensiveness about your spending habits or materialism or patriotism to this country, I would suggest you take that before the Lord, because that's your pride creeping up. God is meaning to convict you in these areas. First and foremost, let's ask ourselves a few questions. First, whose welfare are you striving for in your everyday life? God has indeed called his people in exile in these imperial systems, us included, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. But this welfare was not just economic prosperity, is ultimately to point those in Babylon to Yahweh. It was not to be removed from the world, but stand firm in its midst in a spirit-led display of God's character. Friends, is your life about how you can get ahead and get more and be more comfortable and get the next best deal and figure out the next best economic scheme? Or is your life about worshiping God, enjoying Him forever? and loving those around you by pointing them to him. Which side do you tend towards? It's a spectrum. Well, secondly, how do you view your place in this economic world? Are your finances part of or separate from your walk with Christ? As Christ proclaimed, one of the primary displays of where your allegiance lies is where your money goes, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew six twenty one. Friends, if you are enslaved to your finances, unable to serve the kingdom of God with them, please, 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 please come ask us for help. We have wonderful brothers and sisters that can help you emerge from that enslavement so that your treasure can go to Christ and his kingdom, not just at this church, but his kingdom across, excuse me, across the world. And if you need benevolence as a member of this church, please come ask us so we can help you. Right now we're helping multiple people with benevolence. Why? Because that is part of what the church does. Those who are members in this church collectively pull our tithes together so that we can care for one another. So that we can have dedicated people to preach and teach and serve you. So that we can give benevolence when needed so that we can support other brothers and sisters who are on mission or in other parts of the world less wealthy. We just sent $15,000 over to our brother in Burkina Faso so that people can be fed in the north of Burkina where there's famine. In giving in these ways, we break the bondage of materialism in our lives. God doesn't ask you to give till it hurts because he's a mean God. He wants to break the bondage of materialism. And friends, whether that's here or to God's work in IJM, or Compassion International, or other missionaries. Giving in those ways breaks the bondage of materialism. It is God's gift to us to call us to give. The Bible is clear. To be wealthy is not a sin at all, but to become obsessed with it, that is indeed sin. Well, third, most, if not all of us, have been mourning lately what do you mourn for? Are you mourning at the rebellion of all the world against the God that you serve and that you know mercifully gave his life for them? Is that what you mourn for? Or are you mourning that the seeming progressive growth of our society has taken a U-turn? Or are you mourning that our once supposedly God-fearing nation is no longer so? Is that what you mourn for? Dear friends, Revelation was written 1,700 years before this nation was ever founded, and it has always been the fate that this nation would fall like every other nation-state that does not have Christ as King and Lord. It's a fact. Do not be surprised that God has judged this nation and found it wanting, and is now, and has been, giving it over to its own depraved soul. Judgment on this nation happened long before Biden or Trump or any other leader. So, what are you mourning? Are you in partnership with the saints who have been crying out, How long, O oh Lord, until you establish your throne? Or are you in league with those watching the fall of the Babylon we sit in and crying out, What country? What economy? What military? What morals are like our own great U.S. of A? How could it fall so quickly? Because it's Babylon, and we are one of the many Babylons that have and will fall until Christ establishes his throne. Let's pursue repentance if we find ourselves mourning the wrong thing. And let's pursue the welfare of our country by voting and participating in civics to the best of our ability to try and proclaim the good news of Christ. But let us never put our trust and hope in this nation, for it will be judged. As we watch the world crumble around us, we are shown here what our response should be. Rejoicing. Isn't that strange? While the world around us is mourning, because the worldly system that has been built is going down in a seeming ball of fire, we know that this is really just birth pangs that the world has felt many times before. And so we know better. We rejoice. But with every passing imperial system that falls, it should be a cause for more rejoicing because we know the truth. For we know that the point of judgment is not ultimately for destruction or punishment from a mean, twisted God. Judgment is a glorious thing, because it does indeed show God's justice. We would not want a God who does not judge, because therefore he would be unjust. But ultimately, we rejoice in judgment because it is the removal of that which is counterfeit, so that that which is genuine and true and right and beautiful and eternal might be established for eternity. Amen? We rejoice at the downfall of the worldly system, not because it is one for our team, one for my side, but because it is the removal of that which is earthly, so that that which is heavenly might reign. Amen? It is the removal of the deceitful power of Satan over this world, so that Christ might reign supreme. And so when we see the church supposedly shrinking and losing worldly influence, we don't see defeat those who are true Christians. We realize instead that the wheat and the tares are being separated, and the true church will show itself and will not be shocked that the political system is devolving. When we see one political party or another gaining or losing influence as it has the entirety of our nation, we don't mourn we realize that the false savior of politics is being unmasked and shown to be the counterfeit God that it is to so many, and so we rejoice. And when we see destruction in the world, we mourn with those who mourn, absolutely. But we also rejoice with the fact that this world, as it is known, is coming to a close. We don't know when, but what we see is Satan grasping at any control he can because he knows that he and the harlot he supports are destined for destruction. Friends, while the world mourns over its own downfall, we, the true saints, can rejoice that Christ is coming again to establish his kingdom once and for all. Let's proclaim that now as those who partake together of the providential food that the Father has given to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is tempting indeed to believe that we are in the final days because the mourning that we see around us for this world that is crumbling is so similar to what we see here. It is our temptation to read the daily news stories into your word as opposed to simply reading your word as it should be read and seeing it as speaking lordship over our lives and declaring judgment over the world. Father, we are not special. Our country is not special. Every nation that has fought against you in its actions and in its laws is meant to be judged. And so, Lord, we do, in a sense, mourn for this because we mourn for the fact that our politics, our economics, deceive the people of this country into following false gods. And we mourn as The gospel gets less and less preached. And as more and more laws are established, calling your good news and your laws uh, bad. We mourn that, Lord. But we also recognize it is the way of the world, and so we are not shocked. But, Lord, we pray that as we take communion together and as we continue our liturgy and worship to you, we pray that you would establish our hearts and hold us fast to recognizing that no matter what happens around us in the context of economics or government, Lord, we are still your ambassadors, and you have given us everything we need to proclaim your good news to the world dying around us. And so we pray that the name of this church, that we would be missionaries, would be true about the character of the people here this morning. Help us to be your missionaries sent out into the world with all confidence, with all knowledge, knowing that your kingdom will reign when all other kingdoms fall. And to proclaim that news to the world so that they might come out of Babylon as you proclaimed last week. And so, Father, we pray that from this moment on in this service that you would grasp our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, myself included, that you would help us to lay down our politics, our trust in economics, and instead to turn our hearts 100% fully to you and give you praise and submission of our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time where we can truly commune together as people unified by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.